you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve as the lead pastor of the church, and more importantly, I serve on the team of elders that leads the church, and to clarify, my email address is peter at thespringstx.org. Now, the reason why you're laughing is uh, because maybe you have gotten, a, some of the folks are laughing, you might have gotten an email address from, from an imposter yesterday who somehow hacked into my email system and uh, cre- got a few contacts, created a new email address, Peter dot the springs at Gmail or something like that, and uh, started asking people for eBay gift cards. Just FYI, we will never do that. And if anyone does ask you that, uh, don't, don't give them the gift cards. Uh, we had a friend of ours email that address and say, hey, what, what time is church tomorrow? And by the way, how do I come to know Jesus? Can I be forgiven for email scams? So yes, the answer is yes. And let's just plug into God's word and see all about the gospel. And if you're an email scammer or you're not, either way, you like me, need what God gives us in this book. Amen. So today we're on week three of our birthmark series. Today, Romans 12 is going to bring us really to the heart, the the crux of what it means to honor God and make disciples, which is the center point of our church's vision. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. Lord, help us to slow down and receive. Romans 12, here we go. Verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Please add a blessing to the reading of your word that goes beyond our our best efforts to listen and obey, but gives us your grace to listen and obey. And anything else that's not you that we might be listening and obeying to be removed from us, Lord, through repentance and transformation that only you can do, but we can ask for. So, we, we say, Lord, even though we don't even understand the depth of it, we need you. We need you to, to love you. We need your help in loving each other. And Lord, we need your help in loving those who don't know their need for your love, but that you've sovereignly placed around our lives for such a time as this. So may your kingdom come and your will be done mightily, miraculously, supernaturally, as your people listen to your word. Amen. 
Today we're going to work through our passage from start to finish, and I see in order Paul laying out, at least generally, in a general sense, laying out the three relationships of discipleship. So our relationship with God and then other believers, and then the future believers. So really it's uh, the, the value of worship and fellowship and hospitality in our five verses here. So starting at the top, worship. So this would be the discipleship value of worship, which is our relationship with God and his word, with God and his word. This relationship with God is our foremost relationship, which is going to be why most of this time in the sermon is going to be focused on point one. And quite honestly, most of our issues in life, often that we think, oh, this is a problem I have with this other person. Most often, let me just give you a secret. It's not fundamentally a problem you have with that person. It's an opportunity that you have to grow closer to God and see that security and assurance play out in your other relationships. So, so often we're, we're trying to fix a, a, a fruit or put a Band-Aid on one issue when God is saying, what does this have to do really with fundamentally who I am in your life? And so we are going to spend a lot of time on this relationship. Our relationship with God alone capacitates us for right relationship with other people. If we're not whole in God... We're going to put the burden of our relationship with God on other people that, quite simply, are not God. And we find out in those hard ways, oh, it turns out this dude's not God. Or this lady, my wife, is not God. And we grow bitter with one another because we wrongly place the burden of God in our relationship that we should be whole in him. We place it on other people, and we end up treating them godlessly. So as it relates to our relationship with God, our very first verse, verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And I'll explain why, what this has to do fundamentally with our relationship with God. Because I believe our passage here starts with the objective feelings of God. These extreme, strong feelings of God. This love and hate that are objective realities displayed by the heart of God. This shows this this abhorrence of what is evil and this clinging to what is good. In this sentence, qualifies whether or not our love is genuine. You see how that works? Let love be genuine. And it doesn't just leave us modern Americans. We love words like genuine and sincere, and we kind of just hijack those words and kind of do whatever we feel with them, right? It doesn't leave us to just kind of decide what genuine means, you know, my truth versus your truth. No. Letting love be genuine is qualified and explained by this next sentence, abhor what is evil, semicolon, Hold fast to what is good, period. Abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good displays how we will be in our disposition emotionally if we're connected by the Spirit of God 
to the person of God. We can only love genuinely if it's love from God, playing out in these proper morals and feelings of morals that are straight from God's throne. Instead of loving what is evil and hating what is good, which I had a whole lot of that growing up before I knew Jesus, I just didn't know it. I didn't have a proper hatred for evil and a proper love for good because I wasn't full of God's love. I was full of my best intentions. So only when God is at the center of our passions and our emotions and our motives to an increasing degree, will we to an increasing degree let love be genuine. It has to do with our relationship with God. And then go, go on to verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. How? Serve the Lord. It, again, this, this verse keeps turning our behaviors and our slothfulness, our laziness and our zeal back to our relationship fundamentally with the Lord. The way you live your life and the way you work in any area of life is what truly indicates who you're serving. Above all else and fundamentally before all else, if you're serving the Lord, you'll be moved by what moves him. You won't be slothful in zeal because you'll serve the Lord. You're not serving your boss. You're not serving uh, your best convenience. You're driven by the Lord's passions. That's why this next verse here goes deeper into our relationship with God as it relates to our behaviors and some of the things we do in our lives. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Well, how can I rejoice in hope? Hope fundamentally, quite obviously, is, is a feeling of what I trust in that I'm not quite seeing play out in my circumstances right now. So I can rejoice in circumstances I have not yet seen because of hope. How can I do that? Be, and be patient in tribulation? Well, it has to do with the God that I'm connecting to regularly, habitually in prayer. Specifically, be constant in prayer. Some verses say pray without ceasing. Now, let's just kind of clarify what this doesn't mean. Being constant in prayer doesn't mean you're the person like with prayer beads everywhere you go, like showing them to the world to see. So I'm praying here, right? It doesn't mean you got to like bow your head and say amen everywhere you go. That's, that's just being constant in awkwardness. Being constant in prayer is at least, though, acknowledging that God is with you regularly. Treating God like he's there all the time because he's there all the time. And it's just, quite honestly, awkward, at least in that perspective. It's awkward when you treat someone like they're not there when they're there. And we know what this is like in our human relationships. Have y'all ever been hanging out in a group of people and you can just kind of sense, there's, there's one or two people here that are like, like being treated like they're not here right now. They're kind of being excluded from the interactions of the group. I am aware of this way too late because often it's me that's at fault for that whole paradigm because I'm talking and not leaving space for others to be involved in the group interaction. And so I learned this the hard way. And if anyone else 
is one of those people that uh, tends to exclude people from a group. There's grace for you like there's grace for me. But I'm arguing that I, to a degree, we all do this with God. When it says be constant in prayer, Paul is talking about an increasing awareness of God's presence and acknowledging him. The first verse I, le- I learned in, in, in 1997, one week after Jesus changed my life through a campus ministry, and I came to know Jesus as my Savior. Jesus saves sinners. There's no three words that are higher than those three words. I came to know it in my heart. And the next verse I learned was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Shoot, I'm still working that one out. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will straighten your paths. See, in all your ways, in all your things that you do, we can be prayerful. And it's a learned habit to know that he's there. And it's spiritually less awkward when we're acknowledging the presence of someone who is ever-present. God is always there. Now, I don't want to move too fast on this whole point of our relationship with God because I don't believe that you can serve the Lord and be constant in prayer without something happening first. And that something is back to verse 9 that we're actually going to go back to and go deeper into. That something is love. Verse 9 says, let love be genuine. Now, that's what the ESV translated as. It's an okay translation, but the most literal translation is let love be without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. Even when you say the Greek word, you can hear hypocrisy in it. Anipocritos. Much of what Jesus addressed to the Pharisees, and I think on this, this stage of kind of human history, if you've ever heard the word Pharisee, we kind of have this like pejorative connotation, like, oh, those are the bad guys. But you know, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were the good guys. They were the spiritually elite, elite and admired. And Jesus often rebuked them. And, and, and these people were like, they were the good guys, right? And so even to Jesus' disciples, it felt really weird and awkward that he was so harsh with the good guys. But Jesus regarded them saying basically, yet you're checking off all of the boxes religiously and spiritually and, and in your doctrine. But I know your hearts. I know that you're loving with hypocrisy, that you're technically affirming the things that you're supposed to affirm, but your hearts are far from me. And y'all, can we at least admit that this is scary? Can we be honest and say, shoot, like their genetic makeup, you know, their species is the same as this person right here. I'm also capable of loving with hypocrisy and being passionate and yet far from the heart of God. In fact, if, if you're left to think, oh, it was the, the Jewish pharisaical people that were like that. No. Decades later, Paul addresses Christians. So Christians that have the Holy Spirit. And he warns them in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I am nothing. Wait, What? This is, this is saying, 
that you can give your life savings away and just say, hey, I'm going on a mission for the church in a communist nation, and I will be willing for them to just burn my body for the mission. And yet this is saying you can do all that and yet still not have a heart that truly loves God. This should stagger us a little bit. And the dilemma is that in one sense, you cannot have God's love inside you. We can admit you cannot have God's love inside you without it coming out in certain ways. A father can't say to their child, hey, I love you, but never provide for that child. There's no love on the inside if there's no expression on the outside. But the opposite can be true, where we can do those expressions on the outside and yet be void of the love on the inside. And I'm saying this should concern you. We should concern ourselves before we try to figure out, okay, what does the Bible say to do with my life? There's plenty that it says. But before any of that, it's what does the Bible say about who I am to worship with my heart? If all I concern myself with is that question over and over again, God help me with that question. Who am I really worshiping? God help me with my idolatry with my political views or my economic views or my any other ism that might come against my relationship with you and play out in my words or my deeds or my dollars. Fundamentally, before all else, who am I worshiping from the heart? That is the most important question, and this should concern us. I know how easy it is for pride to taint how I love my wife and my children and my friends in this church. And I wish I could share this with you today on November 10th, 2019, with like a little bit more of like a hypothetical feeling to my my pride, but there's very little hypotheticalness, if that's a word. This very week, I've just been constantly battling with my self-righteous attitudes towards my friends and people that I love and, and self-pity and just demanding my way with, with work and just in my own self, I've struggled with this. Quite honestly, when I, when I preach about things that I'm convinced that God says, and I, I know I'm making other people nervous, but I know I'm obeying the Lord, it's different. Man, we're talking about uh, God's sexual ethic in the Bible today. Lord, you know, help me with my words, right? Talking about money today. Okay, Lord, help me with my words. I'm concerned about obeying God. And what's different with this verse that's a little more difficult is, for me, my particular ongoing need for my Savior is so revealed in Romans 12. And whether or not my love is genuine for the people that God has placed around me in my life. Not that I don't struggle with the other things or money or any of that stuff. I just know that this one right here, I'm to preach a, a truth from God's word that currently he's showing me some needs for repentance in. I'm concerned and I'm saying, I think you should be too. Now there's a wrong way to address this concern. I'm not saying that, man, who knows our hearts? Paul mentioned about how, how, how unsearchable God's heart is and how unsearchable we often are. You can't search your own heart. 
You can't, in your own, in your own best ability, diagnose your own issues. He is the good physician. But you shouldn't be left with, well, therefore, I'm just going to walk around paranoid. Paranoid of myself. Man, I could just be full of sin and unrighteousness, and I'll never know. So I might as well just go, go out just living in fear and not trying to address any of that. No, I'm not saying you should walk around in fear and paranoid just because you alone can't diagnose the root of your own hypocrisy like me. Instead, though, say, you can have a disposition in your life that says, God, to the best I know, would you search my heart and see if there's any grievous way in me, anything in my heart, my money, my words, my spending, anything in me that displeases you, I put that out with an open hand. I don't keep it to myself. I I won't run and hide from you. But God, I'm willing to be naked before you and say, is there anything that displeases you? I want to put that on the table and do business with you. I want to confess that in my growth group to my friends and pray for one another that I may be healed. And when I've done that, I do it again, and I do it again, and I do it again. And I live like a person who constantly needs Jesus because I'm a person who constantly needs Jesus. And he's constantly there. Lo, I will be with you to the end of time. And that's a promise he makes and delivers on. Are you willing to pray? God, whatever it takes to remove hypocrisy from my love, would you do it? Lord, if it means I lose my job, I suffer a dreadful disease, I'm betrayed by someone I love, let my love be genuine. Use whatever you have to use in my life to draw me closer to you. If you're not willing to pray that, Ask the Holy Spirit to help you, to help you be ready to be in a position where you're left completely vulnerable except for the protective, nurturing power of God, who, by the way, is more able to protect and nurture you than you are for yourself. That's a type of trust that leaves yourself in the care of God who has more ability and knowledge to care for you than you can care for yourself. I've found in my life when I'm self-protective and demanding, I turn, turn out being more defensive with other people in my own life. I'm getting nervous because I'm feeling like, man, I'm not hearing any amens. I'm like, am I alone in all this stuff? I think I'm not. I'm going to keep going. Practically, here's a practical sense. I don't want you to get caught up when you say, when you read words like, let, let your love be genuine. I want us to be careful not to confuse that with, what we might think this is saying. It doesn't say, let your love always feel genuine. And this is really important. Practical, genuine love doesn't always have to feel warm and fuzzy. When you get up in the middle of the night with your newborn baby, and you're up feeding the child or changing her poopy diaper, and you're not feeling the love, you're still expressing genuine love. Amen? So you can see an honest choice of genuine love play out and be displayed in a way that honors God without constant fuzzies in your feelings. 
So don't allow the feeling of love to be a barrier to prevent genuine love from expressing itself, especially with your brothers and sisters. I see this a lot. You know, I, I was going to this church. I was with this growth group, but, you know, I'm not feeling it anymore. To which I would reply, well, I have replied, that's okay. Keep going. Your feelings won't dictate how you behave. Your feelings are to be a fruit of a root of something better, something more genuine than your feelings. Oh, I've been married for for five years now, but I'm just not feeling the spark anymore. That's okay. I don't see anywhere in your in your sacrament of marriage, any vows that you made that anywhere that said anything about a spark. The Lord is an all-consuming fire. He sparks things in human relationships, whether it's in evangelism, in our covenant with each other, in my love for him. I love him because of his fire, not because of my subjective sparks. The Lord is an all-consuming fire. He knows how to spark those feelings when they're appropriate. And he is distinctly pleased with people who are not led by the various sparks. So your love can be genuine even when the sparks come and go. Amen? Let your love be genuine. Again, it doesn't just leave us to figure out, okay, well, I'm going to go figure out what that means to myself. No. For your love to be genuine... Second part of verse 9, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I was wondering if this word abhor was like, if there's a nicer way of saying it. And actually, I researched it, and like, that's the nicest way that a translation can make it. Abhor means abhor, hate. There's a little hate in love. For your love to be genuine, you must align yourself with what God hates, Or your love is objectively hypocritical. You have to hate what he hates. And specifically, it's because you will want to please God. It has everything to do with your relationship with God. I remember before I was a follower of Jesus, I was a follower of my older brother. And I found myself like wanting to hate what he hated and liked what he liked. And I started to listen to Sublime because he listened to Sublime. Uh, it was a band in the 90s, and uh, I, don't, I don't recommend going and listening to them. I'm still trying to get them out of my head. And I've been a Christian for 22 years, still working on that, right? But when you love God and you're aligned with him, you'll find out, what, what is he like? What does he, what does he hate? Because you're connected to him. How does he relate to love? certain behaviors and environments that stir up his indignation and hatred, certain things maybe from your past, you won't go near. Is it just because you're a hateful person? Well, you're a loving person, and you know because of what the Lord shows you, the other edge of his love is a disinclination towards things that he doesn't love. It's a passionate disinclination Without a little sanctified intolerance of evil, your love will not be genuine. I don't think it says, let love be genuine, abhor what you don't like, and hold fast to what you do like. 
all of us have grown up with a preference and a confusion based on our cultural background, our, our own personal biases, with what the Bible says is confused often with what I like or what I don't like. And thank God this doesn't, this doesn't leave us to that. We don't have to let this be subjective to our own feelings because the Word of God clearly details what makes God happy and what makes God sad, what he abhors and what he loves. And so if we're, we're going to relate to God, how do we do that? We read the Bible. To love what he loves, to hate what he hates, and without being left to your best subjective intentions, which is hypocrisy and love, you can read the Bible. That's a good start, but I would argue, don't stop there. You read the Bible, but you need a church that reads the Bible as well. Specifically, read the Bible and process the Bible out loud in a covenant relationship with people that are very different than you, but that are reading the same Bible. Now, I just, I just read that from something that I wrote down because I prayed about and that's not just this week, you know, that I wrote those words down. That's the last 10 or 15 years of being in a diverse church in multiple different election cycles and opinions and stupid, foolish ideas that I didn't realize were inside me coming out in my words and hurting the feelings of people around me. And you get around people that believe different things. And guess, guess who's wrong? Everybody. <laughs> we're all wrong. Guess who's right? God. And it just so happens that God wants us to experience his word in a context with other people who don't have it all right. None of us do. But we can maybe just, he can, he's so sovereign and good that he can use our flaws to point out our need for really digging into what his word really says. There's this Bible that came long before America and will survive long after our nation ends, was redeeming cultures and languages and people long before any of us ever started to think about these things, has something to do with our relationships today. And experientially, without growth groups and people that you're around, that you're talking through the Bible and praying with and praying for each other, without that constant community of, of prayer and and mutual submission to the word of God, our best intentions for hating what God hates and loving what he loves will come up short. But I love being specifically in a diverse church where we can have sanctified disagreement in a way that causes me ever so uncomfortably to grow in agreement with what God loves and with how he feels and how that's revealed in his word. So listen, I need you. And you need me. Now, when I was reading this, I read this week, I'm like, man, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Can I just be totally honest with you? Well, I'm going to be anyway, because that's kind of a rhetorical question. But this week, one of the first things I thought was, gosh, yeah, that's, he's, he's totally just like frying the whole relativism argument, man. Those liberals that would think relatively and and uh, just want to define good and evil on their own. And I sense the Holy Spirit saying, 
No, Peter, this is for you. You need to hold fast to what is good. And you confuse this too. And I'm just like, oh, that wasn't from the Lord. And I kept walking. And the first thing that came up was my property taxes. I heard the Holy Spirit says, I didn't tell you to hold fast to your property tax money. And so I got my feelings hurt. I'm like, God, this is not right how the, this Travis County is taxing me like this. And you know what? It's true. There are certain things that we can stand for. We can stand for just property taxation. And we need to stand for equal justice for, for people wrongfully imprisoned. And there are so many things on the earth that we need to take a stand for and quite honestly, apply the truth of the word of God to the realities in the world. And we need to trust that the Bible says that the kingdoms of this earth, this world, have become the kingdoms of our God forever. And so we see that, that, that already not yet reality playing out. And until then, we fight for that. We, we trust with an open hand. We fight for those things with an open hand and speak God's truth so that the kingdoms of this earth come into the obedience of the truth of God. But to the degree to which my current comforts and the timing of how God uh, meets the property tax issues and the other passions that we have, with an open hand, I can say, I'm not going to cling to those things that I'm proclaiming. I'm going to cling to God. And if for now my what I feel is my property tax money or my rights or my feeling of justice, if it just doesn't feel like it's happening in my timing, I'm not going to cling to those things. I'm going to cling to God. And all of us have something that we're passionate about that may very well come from God, that God is saying, I want you to, to continue to fight for, but with an open hand and open your hands so that you can cling only to me and trust me. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And I pray that we would dare ask, Lord, so what pleases you? When we go to the Bible, if you ask the wrong question, you'll get the wrong answer. Before I knew God, I would, I would kind of just try to get the rules of the Bible just enough where it relates to human body and the money and all that stuff. Just all the rules, and I would say, well, how far can I get with what I want and still kind of like follow the rules? When you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. But a person who's been made a child of God by believing upon this, this suffering Savior who died on the cross, by be, becoming a Christian, we're now... Have, ability to, in relationship with God, we have the ability to ask, God, not how, how far can I get with what I want, and how do I kind of follow the rules and kind of trick you into blessing me anyway? No, it's what pleases you, God? What, what pleases you with what I do with my body? All of us live to make someone happy, whether it's someone else or ourselves, but God, through his gospel, gives us the ability to ask God, what makes you happy? He wants us to love him first. And that capacitates us, gives us the ability, number two, to love others. First of all, fellowship, our relationship with other believers. Verses 10 and 13 say this. 
love one another. This is the great, one of the great one another's of the Bible, the New Testament. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. So this brotherly affection is two words in English. It's actually one word in Greek. We've heard this word before, Philadelphia. It's a city that has a team that always loses to the Cowboys. (laughs) Thaddeus, I guess he used to like that team. Philadelphia, it's brotherly affection. Now, he could have said here, love one another with you know, genuine kindness and friendship. But he points to how we are siblings in Christ. That person that's really hard to forgive, that you don't want to talk to, man, you just might be stuck with them because they believe in the same Savior you believe in. And so Jesus is telling us through Paul here, he's mine, you're mine. If you know that you're mine, then you can relate to them. If we don't know that, then we'll just do our best with bilateral relationships. And and those relationships become somewhat transactional. Okay, I'll love you if you can love me back. And I'll be generous to you if you can show that you won't ever hurt me. That's never going to work in any relationship. And God knows it. But God says this, if you love him out of an overflow of my love for you, then you won't be a needy type of sister. You will be a generous type of sister. Again, I'm preaching as someone who's in need of that very thing I'm preaching here. It says contribute to the needs of the saints. Literally, contribute to the necessities of other Christians. Don't be stingy with your time and your money. It's not yours. See, again, how this relates to our relationship with God. If, if I have an overwhelming revelation that God owns everything and God has made me his and God has made me an heir of all the world, then I can give you money knowing, well, more's coming because it belongs to God. And I can give you time when I wasn't planning on it, but trusting that maybe God was planning on this inconvenience, and I can give it to you trusting that, well, he can give me this time back. Then it says, outdo one another in showing honor. Showing honor. Don't confuse showing attention with showing honor. Actually, the word here for honor in the the Greek is, it actually means value or worth. So think of it this way. Outdo one another in showing each other the way God values them and how much they're worth to God. When I I should treat you, if you're my brother or sister in Christ, I need to treat you in a way that prophetically, powerfully, supernaturally shows you how much value you have. If I treat you in a way that reveals you to be something other than what Jesus died on the cross for, then Lord, help me. Outdo one another in showing this value. So I say that sometimes you can be shown attention, but not be shown honor. You can be shown attention in a way that 
directly undermines your value and your worth. Maybe it's attention that dishonors you, uses you for your performance or your body, undermines your true worth. Couples that are dating one another and use the, well, we love each other, and so we do married people things outside the sacrament of marriage. First of all, often, listen, it's because you don't know any better. Okay? But listen, I've known men who destroy their marriages and families with habits at the time where it's like, man, he didn't know any better. He really didn't. And so do I just want to just be okay with that? No, I want people to know better. I want less families destroyed. And most often families start to become destroyed by people doing things they don't know better about before they have families. So dating couples that are behaving in ways that don't show the honor and value of one another, but they're showing their own feelings in regard for one another. And they're doing married people things outside of the holy covenant and sacrament of marriage are not showing proper honor to one another. They're, they're actually dishonoring one another. It literally is, is saying, I say that I love you, but actually you aren't valuable enough to preserve for God's plan of marriage for. And no one, when you say it like that, would want to say, oh, that's how I'm treating this other person. But we do. You see, God help us from just not knowing any better. We can only love others when we're full of his love, his holiness, his standard, his help. And finally, we'll also love outsiders appropriately. Number three, hospitality. Now, don't miss the power of the last few words of this phrase. The last few words of our whole passage, verse 13, is this, and seek to show hospitality. This word seek literally means to to be given to or go looking for opportunities for. So when it says seek to show hospitality, listen to what hospitality means. I'll put it up there. The, the word for hospitality is philoxenia, which literally means philo, love of, and then xenia, strangers. You've probably heard that word xenophobia. It's the fear of strangers. Well, philoxenia is the, the love of strangers. So remember, seek to show hospitality. It literally means go looking for opportunities to love strangers. The Bible's commanding us to do that. Not like, man, if you see a stranger who needs some help, throw them a few bucks. No, like we're supposed to go looking for people, not like when the opportunity presents itself. We're supposed to go looking for opportunities to show love for strangers. Like when we go to the grocery store, Shoot, Lord, help us to like be like, okay, this is what I need, but also, thank you, Lord, this is for storehouse too. It's little things like that. I'm saying if those habits supersede what we think we need, we don't, you know, 
if those habits can, can come and help us to habitually love the strangers, think of them. If our prayer in our growth groups is also praying for people who are not there, God can help us to see and live appropriately, to, to live, quite honestly, like Jesus. Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So if we're truly clinging to Jesus, holding fast to Jesus with genuine love, then we will abhor evil. We will abhor people given to evil, people that are separated from their loving and eternal God like we were, more than we will hate the inconveniences, annoyances, or sacrifices of what it takes to get to them. And to bring it first full circle, let's, let's just back up step by step. If we don't love our brothers and sisters in the church, what kind of family and messaging is that to people outside of the church? You know, we've heard statistics that children... If they had to be given a choice, would you rather have, would you rather know that your daddy loves you or know that your daddy loves your mommy? A remarkable amount of children say, I would rather know that my daddy loves my mommy. Because if my fundamental loves aren't in alignment, what good are they for others? So, so if, the, if the church is not showing love to one another, what kind of place is that to, to produce offspring spiritually? To welcome others into the family. The world needs to see that we can overcome our differences and love each other in order to be a supernatural bridge to others. And take it a step back. We can't love outsiders or even love one another if we aren't fundamentally loving God to an increasing degree with increasing passion and abhorrence of evil and love for what is good. And we need more and more of it. But take it even a step further back. Without the person who initiates my love for him by his love for me, All of my best efforts to love him are just my best efforts. And he doesn't leave us with that. He leaves us with his best. And for us to rest in and believe upon that, know that before I ever try to take any steps of love for him or in the church or with outsiders, before I could try to make disciples, I can honor the one who paid the price on the cross to restore me for the dishonor that I've caused in the world and to bring me into right relationship with him. We can't love outsiders and those inside the church unless we're brought to the inside from the one that's from above. Would you stand with me?